start with a, I don't know if this is a poem, it's something I got from Dr. James Allen. It's called One Solitary Life. I just think it's pretty gripping. Let me just begin with this. Dr. Allen writes this about Christ. He was born in an obscure village, the child of a peasant woman. He grew up in still another village where he worked until he was 30. Then for three years, he was an itinerant preacher. He never wrote a book, he never held an office, he never had a family or owned a home. He didn't go to college. He never traveled more than 200 miles from the place of, he was, of his birth. He did none of the things one usually associates with greatness. He had no credentials but himself. He was only 33 when public opinion turned against him. His friends ran away, and he was turned over to his enemies and went through the mockery of a trial. He was nailed to a cross between two thieves, while he was dying, his executioners gambled for his clothing, the only property he had on earth. When he was dead, he was laid in a borrowed grave to the pity of a friend. Twenty-one centuries have come and gone, and today he is the central figure of the human race and the leader of the column of progress. All the armies that have ever marched, all the navies that have ever sailed, all the parliaments that have ever sat, all the kings that have ever reigned, put together, have not affected the life of man on earth as this one solitary life. Dr. James Allen. We're starting a, a study, as I said, of the Gospel of Mark. It is history's first um, written record of the life, the ministry, the work, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus the Christ. Um, in case you didn't know, um, Christ is not his last name, right? Christ is his title. His first name is Jesus. His title is the Christ. That's the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Messiah, which means anointed one. So it's Jesus, the anointed one. Now, we know a lot about Jesus Christ, especially if you live in the West and if you grew up uh, in a church or something, you know a lot about Jesus. And actually, just want to get a prime the pump here, do a little bit of a pop quiz to see exactly how much we actually know about Jesus. So, let me ask you some questions. Um, his mother's name was? Mary. His father's name was? Joseph, right? He was born in the town of? He ha famously walked on? Right. He was killed by being nailed to a, yeah, we celebrate his birthday on, uh, I'm not so sure on that, Christmas, December 25th. Right. So we know a lot about Jesus, but we need to realize that just something because you know some, a lot about someone doesn't necessarily mean you know that someone, correct? Let me illustrate the point. Granted, a lot less beloved person, maybe more, con maybe, but not more controversial, let me prime the pump. Uh, Donald Trump is the 45th, that's right, he once had a reality TV show named, that's right, he's famous for saying you're, that's right, and he made his money doing, that's right. So we know a lot about Donald Trump as well, but it's not the same thing as knowing Donald Trump. All right, I know some of you are like, yeah, that's for sure great, but uh, the point simply is we might know a lot of things about people. But it doesn't follow from that that we know that individual. For example, if you were somehow, uh, say you're at the beach or at an Angels game or at the mall or wherever it might be, at the stadium, and you saw Jesus, you would definitely say hi to him. But if he saw you, would he know you and know your name and say hi back, right? There is a difference between knowing things about people and knowing people, having that relationship. 
And for all that our culture knows about Jesus Christ, very few people in our culture actually know Jesus, and that's why studying the Gospel of Mark is so important, because Mark asks and answers the question regarding Jesus that really matter. By the way, did you notice from our reading service last week that this kind of, this, this questioning was the driving force between, for the first half of Mark's gospel. Now, I compiled a lot of the verses so you don't have to look at them, but there they are on the screen. These are all from the first half of Mark's gospel. There's this complete kind of astonishment about Jesus. In chapter 1, verse 22, it begins by people were astonished by him. They were amazed by him. They asked, who can do these things? In chapter 2, they said, we never saw anything like this. His own disciples asked, who is this man? Everyone marveled. In chapter 6, they said, how are such mighty works being done? And finally, in chapter 7, it culminates, they were astonished beyond measure. And then even in chapter 8, Jesus himself asked, well, who do people say that I am. And by asking that question, he's asking us, who do you say that I am? Friends, let me say this. If Jesus is not who the Bible says he is, then spending any time learning about him, following him, giving your life to him would be a real waste. Be very honest with that. If he's not who the Bible says he is, we're wasting our time. If on the other hand, If he is who the Bible says he is, to not give your life to him, to not follow him, to not give your heart's allegiance to him will be a tragedy. There's there's no other option. That's the way the Gospels present the situation. There is no middle ground to this scenario. And that's why studying Mark's gospel is so important because Mark asks and answers the questions that matter. Who Jesus is, right? What is Jesus about and why does this matter? Now, we are taking a particular angle to Mark's gospel. We are in our series of discipleship. My assumption is if you are a Christian, you do want to disciple people, and you want to do that well, and we're going to go through the gospel of Mark with the intention that Mark had to use it as a means to disciple someone. And you'll find when we're done with this series, you'll have 16 weeks worth of material. You don't need to buy a book. You don't need to have anything else other than the gospel and walk through the gospel to answer those questions. So this morning is an introduction to our series on the Gospel of Mark, and we're going to use those major issues that are woven all throughout the Gospel as a way to navigate who Jesus is, what Jesus is about, and why does it matter. Now, for those of you who are note-takers, the first thing you want to know about Mark's Gospel is that it nicely divides into two large sections. The first half of Mark's Gospel goes from, obviously, chapter 1 all the way up through chapter 8 and verse 30, and then the second half of Mark's Gospel, and we'll study the first half all the way up through May, and then we'll take a break over the summer and study the minor prophets, and then we'll finish up Mark, the, the rest of Mark, in the fall, and the second half goes from chapter 8, verse 31, all the way up and through chapter 16, and that's the way we're going to study Mark's Gospel together. Now, the first half of this gospel surrounds what we call the mystery of Jesus. And if you were here last week, you could almost, you hear it in people. There's this confusion, a misunderstanding, speculation about who this man was. What is he about? It's not until we get to the climax of the first half in chapter 8 with Peter confessing, saying, you're the Christ, that we get that answer, that, that answer to that question. And by the way, that's, the only, that's only the second time that that word Christ appears in Mark's gospel. 
It nicely bookends the first half. It starts that way. Mark says, this is the message, the good news of Jesus Christ, Jesus the Christ. And then that word doesn't appear at all. And it makes sense because nobody has a clue. Everyone's trying to figure out who he is until finally Peter says it. I know, you're the Christ. And that bookends the very first half of Mark's gospel. The second half picks up the very next verse. And what we see is if the first half, there was this confusion and speculation, the second half has a clarity and precision. The first half was the mystery of Jesus. The second half is a proclamation that the Messiah is Jesus. The one that the world has been waiting for is this fact, this man, Jesus Christ. Now, friends, um, just the very structure of Mark's gospel is informative to us. In other words, to the degree that there's this uh, ambiguity in your life, this confusion, this uncertainty about who Jesus was, it's pretty clear that there could also be an ambiguity and a lack of clarity in your own life. Now, this is certainly true if you're a Christian, right? If you're a Christian and you're not clear on who Jesus is, your Christianity is going to be hazy at best. But this is also true even if you're not a Christian. I mean, at least twice a year, whenever you go to any bookstore or grocery, mar- grocery store, you see these. These magazine covers are everywhere, right? 2,000 years after Mark wrote his gospel, and society is still asking the very same questions that Mark asked, that the people asked, that Jesus himself asked. And my hope is that at the end of this series, if you're not clear on what that is, you, like Peter, can say, I know who Jesus is, and that your life can be shaped and fueled by the same clarity and confidence that we see in the second half of Mark's gospel. So think of it this way. Remember, the, the, in some sense, if you're less familiar with your Bible, you're kind of at an advantage because you approach it with fresh eyes. If you're very familiar with the Bible, sometimes you're at a bit of disadvantage. You kind of read Mark and and Matthew and Luke and John, and because there's numbers and they go in an order, you're tempted to think this is the history. This is how it all played out. But you remember in John chapter 21, the apostle said, look, if we wrote down everything that Jesus said, if we wrote down everything he did, there wouldn't be enough libraries in the world for the books that we could write about this. So each of these gospel writers had to be very selective of the material they put in, which is why in some cases there's a lot of overlap, right? And in some cases you're like, well, this is totally different than the other ones. That's because they were complimenting one another or John felt like, oh, this is missing. We've got to put this in there. And so what they're doing is they're picking the things that Jesus taught and the things that he did and they're threading it in a narrative theme to communicate something. So even the way Mark's gospels assembled and the narratives he puts in and the teaching he puts in, they're all trying to go someplace. And at this large structural overview, I think that's great that that Mark is showing that there's this this uncertainty and confusion and speculation in the first half contrasted with this clear precision and focus found in the second half. And the thing that hinges it is people recognizing who Jesus actually is. And to the degree they don't know, there's this confusion and wandering and aimlessness. And to the degree they know, there's a clarity of focus. Now, 
We've looked at uh, just some of the questions and confusion that people had about Jesus, but I don't know if you were being able to listen Yes, last week. I sat in through both services, and it wasn't just clear, well, it wasn't just obvious in the questions that there was confusion, but even the way Mark talks about the way the disciples would travel around. So, so the question I just asked, for one thing, how many times do you have to go back and forth on the same lake, Right? Did you notice how many times they tend to get in the boat and sail to one side of the lake and get back in the boat, sail back to the other side of the lake? I've been to that lake. It's not that big, okay? You can see the whole thing. You can walk around it. But notice how Mark keeps writing this. Verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 36. And they took him, took, took him, speaking of Jesus, with them into the boat. Mark 5, 21. Then Jesus had crossed again in the boat. Two times in Mark chapter 6. And they went away in a boat. Immediately, he made his disciples get into a boat. And then twice again in Mark chapter 8, and immediately he got into the boat with his disciples. And he left them, got into a boat again, and went to the other side. So there's all this like almost wanderingly meandering around Galilee, like, I don't know what are we going to do today? I don't know. Let's go across the sea on the other side. What are we going to do today? Let's do the same thing. There's just this wandering. Now, granted, Jesus clearly knows what's going on. What I'm simply communicating as Mark is reading this, as we're reading literature, Mark's trying to broadcast something. Along with the confusion of the questions and the amazement and the speculation about Jesus, it's followed up in this kind of meandering, wandering around of the disciples. Well, what's going on there? Why, why does Mark put that in there? Well, like I said, clearly Jesus knows what they're doing, but the disciples don't get who he is right? The people around don't get who he is. The religious leaders themselves don't get who he is. Remember, who's the only cast of characters that understands who Jesus is? Yeah. Every time a demon or a spirit or something of that nature comes on the scene, they know exactly who Jesus is. But Jesus is not going to have his messiahship, his kingdom proclaimed by the lips of demons. So he, he shuts them all down. And he just keeps wandering around teaching, but more importantly, kind of doing these amazing signs displaying his authority and his divinity. His own family in Mark chapter 3, what did they say? He's out of his mind, right? His own family said, Jesus has lost his mind. Uh, um, the, the leaders, the religious leaders, the governing authorities say, we have no idea who this is. Maybe it's the beheaded John the Baptist back from the grave. Maybe it's Elijah. Maybe it's one of the Old Testament prophets. The people have no idea. The disciples have no idea. Did you notice, though, in this first half of Mark's gospel? I mean, we, we got to get this, friends. And this is, this is the kind of thing you don't get by just one cursory reading through. This is why we, we believe in constantly reading Scripture. In just that first half, Mark 1 through 8, and Jesus is doing all these amazing things, right? Telling the paralytic to rise up and walk. Uh, calming the sea and the storm. All these demon-possessed people falling at his feet. You notice there's a pattern here. Jesus has this authority to, to forgive sins. That's the exact question the Pharisees asked. Who's this guy? I think he is forgiving sins. Well, Jesus says, I have the authority to do that. He has the authority over demonic beings that come to him, and they're begging and groveling at his feet to be sent away. He has authority over sin. He has authority over the demonic beings. He has authority over the wind and the ocean. Mark chapter 4, his disciples say, oh my God, who is this? Even the wind and the water listens to his voice. 
So he has authority over sin. He has authority over the demons. He has authority over nature itself. He has authority over death. Death bows down to him. Remember Jairus' daughter, he says, why are you weeping? She's not dead. She's sleeping. Child, get up. And she comes back to life. So he's got authority over sin. He's got authority over um, uh, demons, over nature, over death. He's got authority over sickness. The guy who's a uh, paralegic, uh, all these sick people getting healed. So Jesus has authority. All these things bow to him. Sin, nature, death, disease, demons. Did you notice what's strangely absent, though? Who's the only people who don't recognize his authority or challenge it? Us. Nature itself recognizes the authority of Christ and obeys. Death itself backs off and says, you're the king. Demons shudder at his feet. The only cast of characters that don't recognize his authority or challenge it, it's you and I. What does that say about us? When everything in the created order recognizes who Jesus is, but not human beings. Friends, we're in a whole world of trouble here. We are in a world of trouble when the kingdom of darkness grovels at his feet, but we don't even get it. And so there's this wandering. And so Jesus is not just wandering aimlessly. He's being patient to teach and to display who he is, that people would get it primarily as disciples. And it culminates in chapter 8, when finally Peter says, wait a minute, okay, I'm, I'm tired of being back and forth on the Sea of Galilee. I've been watching enough. I've been listening enough. I figured it out. When Jesus says, who do people say that I am? And they say, and Peter, you can imagine him being quiet. He's like, no, no, he's not Thomas. He can't be John the Baptist. Matthew, that's foolish. That's not him. And Peter says, no, you are the anointed one who's to come. You're the one to whom every man, woman, and child must reckon with. You're the dividing line between truth and falsehood. You're the one that separates life from death. You are the anointed one that humanity must give an account to. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God, is what he says. And we know in Mark's gospel, he just says, you are the Christ. But we know in the parallel account in Matthew's gospel, he says more. He says, you're Christ, the Son of the living God. So Peter figures it out, and Jesus smiles. And then what do you notice? Immediately, the narrative does an about-face. There's no more wandering. There's no more confusion. There's no more questions being asked. Everyone knows at that point, from then on out, who Jesus is. Granted, they don't like it, but they know they either have to love him or hate him. They're either going to follow him or they're going to flee from him. They're either going to bow down or defy him. But the choice is clear. And friends, that's what Jesus does. Jesus makes the choice clear. You ever, you ever notice having conversations at the office or at school, and even in our, our, our kind of popular culture, it's easy to talk about God, isn't it? I mean, our, our celebrities talk about God. Our politicians will evoke God. Deists will talk about God. Theists are comfortable talking about God. God's an easy topic. Did you ever notice how cold it gets when you start talking Jesus? Right? Because Hebrews 1 tells us Jesus is the exact imprint of his nature, the, the radiance of the glory of God himself. When we start talking about Jesus, it gets really focused because Jesus intended it that way, that there's not going to be a middle ground. We all have to decide, every one of us in this room, I had to make that decision, 
My wife had to make that decision. My kids have to make that decision. You have to make that decision. There's no middle ground. We either bow down or defy him. We love him or hate him. We'll follow or fight him. We either take his life as our own or we live our life all alone. That's the options. That's why we still talk of him 2,000 years later. The, the Cambridge and Oxford scholar C.S. Lewis, uh, he's famous for what's now called Lewis's Trilemma, and he puts it like this in his book, uh, Mere Christianity. He says, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say, Lewis writes. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God, but let us not come with any, any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that option open to us. He did not intend to. Now, it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend, and consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that Jesus was and is God. See, Mark makes it clear who Jesus is. He is God himself. And the second question that Mark wants to get to is, well, then what is Jesus about? What is Jesus about? If, this, if he is God himself, well, what's he about? And honestly, we could have chosen any of the four gospels in our series on discipleship. We could have used that, looked at any of these gospels as a good model for discipleship, but each of them has their own emphasis, and we want to focus in on one like Mark. Uh, so, so, for example, Matthew's emphasis is on teaching, right? There's a lot of content in Matthew's gospel. So, in Matthew's gospel, for example, there are 20 teaching parables in that gospel compared to Mark that only has seven parables. By contrast, Mark places his emphasis on discipleship on action, on, on, on serving, on, on living it out. That's the emphasis that Mark has. In other words, Mark views discipleship not so much through the lens of what we know, but how we're living our lives. Even his vocabulary shows that. Remember last week, I, I touched on just nine times in chapter one, Mark uses the word immediately, right? Like he's very impatient, like immediately this happened, immediately this happened, then they did this immediately, then they did this, and then Jesus did this, on and on and on to push the narrative forward, to give you a sense of urgency. 42 times in 16 chapters, he uses the word immediately, as opposed to Matthew that uses the word seven times. Luke only uses it once, and John, the apostle, uses it three times in his gospel. All those gospels are much longer than Mark's, but Mark uses it way more often in such shorter account because he's trying to communicate. We got to get after this thing called discipleship. The king is here. We need to live in light of that. Now, honestly, that kind of urgency, that kind of forward momentum might simply reflect the source material's personality. Anyone want to take a guess who the source material behind the gospel of Mark was and is, or I shouldn't say is because 
he's now passed away in glory. Um, it was Peter, Peter the apostle. So Mark, according to Papias, the late first century, early second century church father who knew the disciples personally, he had said that Mark recorded everything that Peter told him about what Jesus said and did. And so from that, from Peter, Mark took all these accounts and created the gospel of Mark. So to Peter or Mark, however you want to think about it, discipleship is more about being with Jesus, more about living this Jesus life than it is necessarily even understanding him, right? And we see that picture of Peter, particularly in John chapter 6, where Peter has no idea what Jesus is talking about. As a matter of fact, Peter is like confused, and Jesus says to him, well, do you want to go away? And Peter just simply says, well, where else are we going to go? I don't understand what you're doing but I know you got the words of eternal life. I'm staying with you. So we see that emphasis in Mark's gospel, that Mark believes that discipleship is not about understanding everything about Jesus as much as I want to live the way the master lived. And we really should expect this from Peter, if you know anything about Peter, right? He's the guy who walks out of the boat to walk on water, and then what happens? He panics and begins to sink, right? Uh, he's the one that calls out and says, you're the Messiah, and then, and then uh, a little bit later in the narratives, when a servant girl challenges him and says, hey, aren't you one of Jesus' disciples? He forcefully rejects that completely, right? This is the same disciple that cowers before servant girls and yet boldly defies all the authorities to then preach the gospel. That's why we like Peter. There's, there's, this, there's this kind of enthusiasm, a ready-fire aim that makes him such an endearing disciple, as a result of that, when you read the Gospel of Mark, the impression you get about Christian discipleship, honestly, it's a little unhinged, right? It follows Peter's personality. Friends, when you think about following Jesus, it should actually be a little, make you feel a little unhinged, like, like man, you're just not sure what he's going to do next, because he fundamentally challenges everything that we believe. He challenges what you believe about yourself, the world you live in, what's right and what's wrong, what's true, what's not true. Jesus will challenge your preferences. He will challenge your priorities. He'll challenge your desires, right? That's what Jesus does. What this practically means is if you are waiting to, be kind, to get to a certain point where you're ready enough, you're never gonna get there. You'll never be ready enough You'll never feel worthy enough. You'll never feel like you know enough, that you're prepared enough, that you're strong enough, that you're smart enough, that you're godly enough, that you're good enough. You're just never gonna feel enough. Friends, just think with me. How many great acts for God are not being undertaken because someone somewhere is just waiting to be enough in some way or somehow? Right? Think of William Carey. We've talked a little bit about him. He's the father of modern missions. He, he's that man that went to India in 1793 and just said, well, I mean, there was no missionary movement, right? None of that existed. And he says, I'm going to do it. And we look at him as a hero of the faith. But listen to what he said. I just love it. I can plod, period. Let me say that again. He said, I can plod, right? Just plod. You know what plodding is, right? I can plod. That is my only genius, he said. To this I owe everything. The greatest heroes of the faith are not always those who are soaring high above, 
but those who are simply taking the next step. I can plod. And this man launched the modern missionary movement. I just love it. He says, look, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not waiting to be good enough or better enough or smart enough, but I can just take the next step. And that is Peter's emphasis in discipleship. It's not so much having how much we know, but how we're living, how we're serving, how we're willing to give our lives away. Friends, when you read Mark's gospel, you've got to sense that urgency of discipleship. When you think about your own Christian faith, you have got to speak that sense of urgency because in a world of ours, like comforts and affluence, you can get deadened real quick. You've got to preach the gospel to yourself every day to keep that on that edge. And we see this, this dramatic, uh, this, this motivation to serve most dramatically from Jesus himself at the hinge of the book when Peter says, you are the Christ, what immediately does Jesus do? It's totally contrary to our cultural expectations. In our culture, when someone recognizes that you are the CEO, that you're the boss, what do you usually tell them? That's right. Now go get me a sandwich, right? Go do what I'm telling you to do. You do the grunt work now that you've figured it out. What does Jesus do? If you're at Mark's gospel, look at Mark chapter 8. The very first verse of the second half of the gospel, when people finally get that Jesus is the anointed one of God that history has been pointing towards, what does he say? Verse 31, Mark 8. Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days, rise again. We get it, Jesus. You are the Christ. Yes, and I'm going to be rejected by everyone, and I'm going to be killed, and I'll rise again three days later. And to reinforce the point, just two chapters later, in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, he says it again, that the Son of Man has not come to be served but to serve and to give his life away as a ransom for many. Peter's emphasis of discipleship that we hear in the Gospel of Mark is about servanthood. It's almost unhinged because Jesus keeps challenging all of our, our preconceived notions and our desires and our preferences. And it's an unhinged feeling. But now, if that's all we got from Mark's gospel, we would feel a bit overwhelmed because it's an overwhelmed feeling to feel unhinged all the time, right? It's just not psychologically good for us. So the second major emphasis of Mark's gospel is a, a very comforting one to balance out the unhinged radicalness of this Christian life. Mark's emphasis is on growing faith. And by the way, I think that's, that's deliberate, yeah? Because you're saying, there's no way, I'm re- there's no way I can live this way. And, and, and Mark, through Peter, saying, yeah, you can. Faith will develop. Faith can grow this way. And faith is not some mystical uh, attribute that some of us get and some of us don't. The rest of us just have to suck wind while those with faith do something, right? It's, faith is not a magic formula. According to the Gospels, particularly Mark, faith grows when, there's, when you're hear, repeatedly hearing the words of Christ and participating in what he's doing, that's what you're seeing in the gospel, that the faith of the disciples grow as they're listening to him. Again, they're not comprehending everything, but they're, they're trusting and they're participating in what Jesus does. Faith begins to grow in them. Put the two together. What Mark is saying is that this Christian life really is unhinged, man, but that's okay 
by listening to what Christ is doing, by exposing yourself to Him and for us in the Gospels, your faith will grow. And while it seemed really unhinged at first, you'll start to get used to that and you'll start to actually like that. That faith can grow. And this is a huge element in the Gospel of Mark, and we'll unpack it, but I just want to give you the core hub of the teaching. So go to Mark chapter 8, and, and I, want to, I want to lay this out because, like I said, Mark is creating a literary device here, and this concept about growing in faith. So Mark chapter 8, verse 18. Oh, thank you, Marley. Jesus basically says to them, hey, do you have eyes and you do not see And do you notice just four verses later, they run into a blind man who obviously cannot see? That's not coincidental, friends. So Mark lays this out by Jesus asking the question, don't you see? And then they run into this blind man at Bethsaida who does not see. And notice Jesus tries to heal him in verse 22. And they came to Bethsaida and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see men, but, but they look like trees walking. Verse 25, then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes and his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Okay, so Jesus says, hey, you guys have eyes, but you don't see And then there's a blind man who who Jesus touches him and he kind of sees, but not quite. And then he touches him again and then he sees. Just a few verses later, we have the hinge point of the book where Jesus says, well, who do people say that I am? In other words, do you see? Do you see yet? And then there's Peter's confession. I know who you are. I see you're the Christ. And then less than two chapters later, notice another blind man in Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, verse 46 to 52, there's a blind man named Bartimaeus, and they bring him to Jesus, and Jesus taps him on there, touches him, and he sees instantly. What is Mark doing? And by the way, between these bookends where there's this blind man at Bethsaida who has a hard time seeing, and then blind Bartimaeus who sees instantly, between these two bookends, three times, Mark 8, 31, Mark 9, 31, Mark 10, 32 to 34, Jesus tells them, now that you know who I am, this is what I've come to do. And so what Mark is saying is, look, like the blind guy, if you don't get it, if you don't have faith yet, you repeatedly, the repeated touch of Jesus will give you clarity. And so he's using the blind man that Bethsaida to demonstrate they don't see But Jesus keeps working with them, and then they see. And after this strong conviction that you are the Christ, now in chapter 10, there's a blind man that he immediately sees. He gets it. Mark is trying to point out that faith is not just a zero-sum game where it's all or nothing. Faith grows and develops and brings clarity. But it comes from the repeated hearing of Jesus and being with Jesus. Faith can grow. So whatever seemed unhinged before doesn't seem unhinged at all. You're just now realizing, I put my hinges on the wrong place. I need them to be with Jesus Christ. I just had my values wrong. I had my priorities wrong. My desires were wrong. That's why they seem unhinged. And now through faith, I know where they need to be. You see, that's the transformation of discipleship. So we know who Jesus is. We know what he's about. Now, why does this matter? And this is the last question of the text that we look at this morning. And the answer to this question is found in Jesus' favorite self-designation about himself, and it's the title, Son of Man. 
And that title appears 14 times in Mark's gospel. Now, if you're not familiar with the Bible and you read Son of Man, you might think, oh, that's a nice kind of humble, self-deprecating title to give himself, as, as if Jesus had this like accidental huge influence like an ancient forest gump, right? He's just kind of moseying along and he's just changing the world, right? Because he's just the son of man. But if you understand the Bible, the whole scriptures, that title is used many different ways. So Numbers 23, 19, son of man just refers to a human being, right? God says, I am, I am not a son of man that I would lie. I am God. So God is saying, son of man, you're just a human being. In the prophets, Ezekiel, 93 times is called the son of man. So there's a more technical use that you're like a prophet or a messenger. So the title son of man had a lot of elasticity and they would have known that. Here's the thing. Jesus uses that title 14 times to refer to himself and three times he specifically refers to a passage. You can turn to it and if you're using a pew Bible, it's Daniel 7, page 745. Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. Three times in Mark's gospel, Jesus talks about himself directly referring to what Daniel says in Daniel chapter 7. So let me turn there, page 745 if you're using a pew Bible. Daniel chapter 7. So everyone would have heard Jesus talking like son of man. Why is he using that? What does he mean by that? Because does he mean he's a prophet? Does he mean he's a messenger? Does he mean he's a regular guy? Does he mean Psalm 110, he's more than a regular guy? The answer is yes. Jesus is all these things. And then he uses it three times in Mark's gospel, quoting Daniel 7. This is Daniel 7, 13 and 14. The prophet Daniel writes, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him and to the son of man was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed jesus knows exactly who he is and, and ironically and obviously the demons know exactly who he is Humanity is just beginning to figure it out. But Jesus knows he's the one that comes in power, in glory, and in suffering, and eventually one day in judgment. And he's calling all creation to account. And so we come back full circle to Lewis's trilemma. And he clearly couldn't, he clearly wasn't a lunatic. Or if he was a lunatic, we can ignore him. If he was a liar, we'd be foolish to be listening to him or spending any of our time with him. That only leaves one other option, that he was Lord and what he says matters. And what you do in response matters. The question that he asked his disciples is the question that he asked everyone. And as I showed you from the Time magazine and Life magazine, it's the question that everyone's still asking, who do we say that he is? And if you are a Christian, you are saying he is Christ, the anointed one, worthy of your worship and allegiance and the way you live your life. If you're not a Christian, I'm hoping you'll hang with us and you begin to realize, man, this guy is something more than I thought he was to be. And that you one day will say with Peter, you are the Christ. Because to the degree you can say that, he is the lens that brings all of life into clarity all of life, all the issues we face in our society, from racial reconciliation to, to economic disparity and everything in between, the Bible says the answer is in Jesus Christ. 
The issues of racial reconciliation, the Bible says, in him, he has made us all one new creation in Christ. Whether you're black, white, yellow, red, we're all the same in Christ. We're made one new person, one new humanity. To the economic disparity, 2 Corinthians 8 says, he was rich, but he became poor so that his, through his poverty, you might become rich. And on, whatever issue we have in our culture, the Bible has the answer in Jesus Christ. But it all depends on whether or not you see him clearly as the Christ or if you're still confused. And my, my prayers, as we study through the gospel of Mark, that picture of who he is becomes more and more clear in your mind, so there's increasing confidence and excitement that you don't care about what your friends might say or don't say if you tell them about Jesus, because you know one thing matters and one thing alone, do they know who Jesus is? And friends, do not be deceived, right? This world is passing away. We got just a couple of years left, right? We know it. As our study from the book of James taught us, live for things that matter. And I hope our study of Mark's gospel will encourage you that way. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Man, there's just so much more we could say about Mark's gospel. We have to land it here. Well, we thank you that clearly, I mean, in spades, the Bible proclaims Jesus is God. It doesn't proclaim it in the way Western American 21st century ears want to hear it, but that's not who the original audience was. But it was very clear to them who he said he was. Thank you for Peter, who's discipling us and reminding us it's not about knowing more information. It's about living out the information we know, even if it feels a little bit unhinged. As long as we hang with you, you continue to increase our faith. And Father, we know that this matters. Life is so short, and soon this thing, all the things that we, we think are so important will pass us. So help us to be a community that live for what matters. And thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.